Well, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. John 2, a, uh, a miracle of Jesus that no doubt we are familiar with. And uh, as always, we, we want to see what it has to say about Jesus and what it has to say about the cross. John chapter 2, again, mornings we're, we're trying to get through the miracles of Jesus through Matthew. In John's gospel, uh, there aren't as many miracles. In fact, you won't find the word miracles in John. It's the word signs. There are seven signs, um, whereas in, in Matthew, there's dozens of miracles, um, but only seven major signs in John's gospel. So we should be able to get through some of these. So John chapter two, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we will look at the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed, and it was at a wedding. We'll start in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, uh, then pour the wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we ask every time we gather with your word open that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, our entire being, every part of us is submissive to your word, submissive to your will, and submissive to your son. Um, so we come to this text, let not our familiarity rob us of the glory of Christ presented here. So I may, may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Every time I read this passage with other Christians, I feel like right at the, the beginning, we need to make something very, very clear. Okay, so here it is. This has nothing to do with the morality or the legality of drinking alcohol. Is, 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 is that, you see why that's necessary to point out, right? I don't know how often in my life, the only time people talk about this passage is in debates of whether or not we should drink. That is not the issue that John had in mind whenever he wrote this. He did not write it so that uh, uh, those who are against alcohol can turn the word wine into grape juice. It is not written so that those who are pro-alcohol can say, well, Jesus drank, I can too, <laughs> and then go on, right? That is not the point of the passage. The passage has nothing to do with the legality or morality of drinking. It has everything to do with Jesus, and that's the important part to see. Now, if we had time, and we've done this before, we, we could go back to chapter 1, and we can see uh, where John introduces his, his big themes that he's going to keep returning to in, in every chapter. In fact, if, if you want to, you can go to our playlist on YouTube where we, we went through every chapter of John during the peak COVID, and uh, I, I try to show some of that. But basically, there are four L's that John is laying out. Uh, Jesus as life. Jesus as light, Jesus as lamb, and Jesus as logos, okay? And all those are introduced in chapter 1. Again, we've talked about them in other uh, places. 
so it is important for us to, to see that, that having introduced that this is who this Jesus is, the, the Logos Light Life Lamb in flesh, then we can better appreciate what it is that he is doing here, especially to see that Jesus is the divine Son of God. That is to say, he is Logos, Creator, Redeemer. Verses 1 to 2, we see the setting in Cana. It's made very clear in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Nazareth was, of course, a small town where everyone uh, knew everybody. Um, and everybody knows your name. Is, is, that, is that the country song? My wife tells me I don't listen to country music, so I wouldn't know that. But, but, uh, uh, but everybody knows everybody. I grew up in, in one of those uh, towns, right? To this day, you've heard me complain about this. Uh, I've not lived in Owen County pushing 20 years. I graduated 2003, so you can do the math how old I am. So next year is 20 years whenever we left Owington. And to this day, mom and dad will say, well, you, you know so-and-so. They're related to so-and-so and went to school with your sister. Like, Mom, I don't know anybody that went to school with my sister, nor did I care who her friends were. Still don't, frankly, right? And I haven't lived here for 20 years. My mother did this recently. She, she's talking about she's going to take a trip down Alaska with some of the people of her church. She goes, you won't believe who's all going to Alaska. I'm like, please tell me. I'm not going to know who these people are. And she's going through it. And every name goes through all 80 of them. It says, well, so-and-so's related to so-and-so by, by, by marriage, okay? And then, and then you know, and just, just all the way through. Like, that, that's good. Happy for you. I don't know who these people are. But if you grow up in a small town, you, you do indeed uh, know who, who everyone is. I remember when uh, I, I, was, I met my wife, I, I thought well, she must be from out of town. And that's because I didn't know who she was. I thought I knew everybody in that school. I knew everyone except for, unless, of course, if you were from Carroll County, I guess. I didn't take the time to know them. Well, if Nazareth was small, Cana, which was only about nine miles uh, uh, from Nazareth, was even smaller. And you notice, not only is he in Cana, but his mother is there. It's interesting. Mary is never identified in the story uh, by name, right? Just the Mary, the, or she, she's just called the mother of Jesus. Now, there could be a practical reason for that. And that is because if, if you've read the Gospels much, you know there are a lot of Marys. Everybody knew a Mary. Now, there's a good reason for that, uh, because there's a Mary in the Old Testament. Her name is Miriam. And it's the sister of Moses. That's a great name to name your daughter. Here is the sister of Moses who led the people in worship as they crossed the Red Sea, Exodus 15. It's a great name. And, and much like these tribal communities are, uh, there, there, there's, there's a handful of names that everybody seems to be named uh, uh, there. So uh, we don't do that as much nowadays, but certainly back then you, you would have. And there's, there's other Marys in the gospel, and perhaps John is trying to keep us from confusing him. Well, they're at a wedding here in Canaan, and weddings were big deals back then. No, they're big deals now, um, to the chagrin of every groom, right? You know, you know like, like every groom is like, if this is what I have to do to get the girl, I'll do it, right? You want me to dress up and waste a lot of money? Fine, then if it makes you happy, I just want the girl, okay? Now, if she said, honey, I want to go to elope today, he is going to elope today. He doesn't care what steps and hurdles he has to get through. My last hurdle I had to go through, I was mentioning this this morning before Sunday school, the last hurdle I had to get through to get my father-in-law to approve of me marrying my wife a month before our wedding, right? We've, we've already um, uh, got appointments for our toes and fingernails ready to go, right? Everything's ready to go is I had to go to Georgiana, to the Hank Williams Festival and see the burial spot of the king of country music, Hank Williams. 
Okay? And if you don't think he's the king of country music, then do not tell my father-in-law that. I don't care what you think. Do not let him know. I'm quite fond still of his daughter. Uh, but here, a typical Jewish wedding will last about a week. Can you imagine being around your in-laws for seven days? My goodness. And like all your, your spouse's old college friends for a week? Unbelievable. But of course, these were communal events, right? You, you, you raise kids in, in anticipation of this. There's a huge, huge event. And this would have been one of the biggest events of the year in this small town. So that's the setting in Canaan. Verses 3 to 5 gives us the situational crisis. And there it is in, in verse 3 for us. It says, the wine ran out. That is a big deal. That is a big, big deal. This would have been a serious issue at this time. It would have been the responsibility of the bridegroom and his family to make sure uh, that the wedding, everything in the wedding was taken care of. Remember, hospitality is one of the chief things about a person here. Um, and so if you had not planned for the amount of people who would come and how long they'd be there and what their needs were, this would bring great shame upon you and your family. And you don't want your marriage to start out this way, right? You would never be forgiven for this. Um, and so uh, this is a problem. After all, uh, people would begin to wonder, particularly about the groom, how can we expect him to provide for a wife and family if he can't meet basic expectations of a wedding? Right? This, this would have been a very scandalous thing. Uh, thing. And so uh, Mary comes in here, there's the mother of Jesus, and she comes to Jesus in the middle of a crisis. Now, remember, she has never witnessed a miracle of Jesus. Okay? She, she's never seen that. It's unlikely she's expecting a literal miracle. Perhaps what she wants is for Jesus to come up with a solution. Now remember, it's very likely that Joseph, Mary's husband, has deceased by this point. A lot of it's circumstantial, but I do think there is strong evidence to, for that. Remember that we don't meet Joseph after Jesus is 12. There in Luke chapter 2, he never shows up again. Um, and, and it's very clear that Jesus has some leadership role in his family. That is made very evident from the cross in John's gospel when he appoints uh, his disciple to lead his mother, not one of his brothers who was embarrassed by him. So why would Jesus do that if Joseph is still alive, right? And why would Mary come to Jesus for this issue? Because it's, it's, it's a, probably a family event, a cousin of Jesus get married, something like that. Why would Mary come to Jesus if Joseph is still alive? So now he has become the head of this family. And notice his response to this, this uh, you always feel like you're walking on eggshells when you read this verse. Jesus said to her, woman, should we pause there for a minute, right? Um, I do not think, husbands, you should call your wife woman because of this verse, okay? <laughs> Just you know, make that clear, right? Um, I've heard men say that, and uh, they deservedly really get their ears boxed by their wives. But uh, And to our ears, this, this does sound disrespectful. Um, we, would, we, we wouldn't do this. We may make jokes, yes, but, but we, would, we would rightly frown on anyone speaking to their mother or wife like this, right? We, we wouldn't do this. At the same time, such language should not come to us as 
as surprising, right? What we get here is, is a distinction being drawn between the man Jesus is, right? He's, he's no longer the, the boy raised by a mother. What, what we see here is a real turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Remember, in the Gospels, they turn to the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus as that turning point, right? Jesus was um, a young man, born in Galilee, you know, all that sort of stuff, raised in Galilee. In John's Gospel, this is that turning point. It's the time when, when there is a crisis in Cana, and perhaps a family crisis at that, and Mary comes to Jesus. This is the turning point in John's telling of the story of Jesus for him. And so he says, woman, what does that have to do with us? Again, to our ears, this, 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 this sounds really rough, but, but I'm, I'm, I don't think it would be as striking in Jesus' day. He is saying something like, your concern and mine are not lining up at this point, right? Uh, uh, that concerns you, not me. Right? Well, what we're seeing here, in fact, the, the language that, that uh, Jesus' time had not yet come, John is drawing us to Jesus is not a person who does miracles because he can. The miracles point us to something far greater. So Jesus isn't going around doing magic tricks. And, and so he's drawn this distinction, right? Uh, this gift that my Father has, has given me is important. And I do believe that is important, is, is he will speak of the work his Father has for him. So, so the, the desires of Mary are now going to be drawn very differently from the demand and the will of God the Father for Jesus, right? And, and so what happens is instead of harassing him, she respectfully trusts her son and orders the wedding servants to listen to whatever it is he tells them to do. And that leads to a simple command in verses 6 to 8. Uh, there were six stone water jars there for the Jew Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, uh, the Jews were constantly concerned with cleanliness, not because they were afraid of germs, but mostly because they were afraid of Gentiles. I mean, let's, let's be honest, right? They, they, they saw everything as making them dirty. And so they were constantly going through the process of washing, right? If you touch the wrong thing, do the wrong thing around the wrong sort of people, you need to constantly be, be, be washing. And so at a wedding like this, you would have access to such water. And this would be part of the uh, of, of, of planning process. Now, each of these pots held between 18 and 24 gallons of water. So if you're thirsty, I can tell you where to go. Find the nearest Jewish wedding and you can get all the water you, you need. So if you put all of these together, that's somewhere in the range of, say, 108 to 144 gallons of water available at this wedding. It's a lot of water. That is a lot of water. And so Jesus says, okay, we, we got water here. I've got a plan, right? It's given to us there in verse 7. Uh, fill the jars with water. Well, that's sort of what they're there for, right? And, of course, they're not full because they've been used. So you're going to go down to the well. You can go down to the creek, whatever it is. You're going to fill these up with water. And they fill them up to the brim. Now, that detail is significant for John because it shows what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not say, fill it up halfway. I've got a secret stash of wine that mama doesn't know about underneath my, my bed, okay? It's out in the shed, out back. I buried it underneath, right? It's there for such a time as this. You can't do that, right? It's full of water to the brim. So the reader sees this, and John wants you to see the only thing in these water pots is water. 
All right, that's the point of that detail. It's only water in there, okay? And verse 8, he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, remember the ancient world did believe in miracles, but they had a term called miracles for a reason, right? One of the things that drives me crazy about critics when you're reading the Bible is, well, yeah, they believed anything. No, no, no. They had a word which meant this defied common sense. This defied science, right? Now, now think about it. If, if I have a bucket of water here, okay, and I fill it up, let's say, black cherry Kool-Aid, right? I mean, this will get much better than that. Fill it up, black cherry Kool-Aid, and you take uh, a, a, a Kentucky Baptist foam cup, right, and you dip it in there. And you, you filled your cup up with, and you're going to take a drink because it's vacation Bible school. What are you going to taste? Black cherry Kool-Aid. Right? I hope you're keeping up with me. Are you able to keep up with me here? Now imagine it's a Jewish wedding, and you, you, you take water, and it's only water, and you dip it, and you give it to the, the guy in charge. What do you think he is going to be drinking? Water, right? I mean, it's it's... There's a word. If he doesn't taste water, there's a word for that. Miracle, right? So you can see the servants like, okay, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so so you, you, you want me to take water to the main dude and tell him it's wine. I mean, you may be a good liar. You ain't that good, right? I mean, I mean come on. This, 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 there, there's, there's, John gives us the details for, for a reason. Regardless of that, the servants do precisely what Jesus asked them and what Mary asked them to do. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Don't ask questions, just, just do it. And this leads, verses 9 to 11, to the sign of Christ. Notice it there in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. There it is. When did it become wine? Whenever Jesus made a wine. It was water, filled to the brim, water. At some point between filling it up and tasting it, it became wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, good job, this is the best wine. This isn't typical of weddings. Usually you dilute it by this point, but no, you guys brought out the best here near the ends. Now, in recording the head waiter's words, John is emphasizing the quality and the miraculous nature of the wine. Jesus as Logos, the divine creator son of God, he demonstrates he is a true and better wine. And that may sound strange to us, but, but in the Jewish mindset, that makes complete Sense. In fact, notice verse 11, John notes that this sign points to Christ's glory. This is the first of his signs. Remember, the word miracles does not appear in John's gospel. Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Why? He turned water into wine. You think, he just saved the day. That's all he did, right? He, he turned water into Coca-Cola or grape juice for you Baptists, right? And that's all he did. That's all he did. Why then do they say, now we believe him? Now we get who this guy is. And that is where we need to understand and read it as a first century Jew, not as a 21st century Southern American. In Exodus 7, the destruction of the Nile River is man manifests God's glory, right? There, God turns water into blood, 
And the text says, remember, God tells Moses, I'm going to do things in Egypt and people are going to know my name. People are going to glorify me because of what I've done. And what is it that God did? He turns water into blood. Here, he turns water into wine. One is destructive in an act of judgment. The other is constructive in an act of grace. Therefore, it's not an accident, though not recorded in John's gospel in, in, in this way, that when Jesus holds up the cup, what is it that he says? This is my blood, and it is poured out for you, taking us back to Egypt, where blood is either a sign of judgment in the Nile, or it's a sign of grace like it is uh, with the mantle for the Passover lamb and for at the cross. Jesus is turning water into wine, much the same way the Redeemer of Israel turned water into something else. Now remember, John is not interested in giving us good advice in this gospel. He's interested in giving us good news. And to him, Jesus as the divine logos, the creator son of God, is the good news. So, so you don't ask, what does this say about the wedding? What does this say about Jesus? And there's two things we need to see here. First of all, we've already talked about Jesus is the new wine. He's a true and better wine. Verse 4 is key here. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If you keep reading through John's gospel, that phrase is going to come up. My hour, my hour, my hour. And it's very evident in John's gospel what that means. It means the cross. That's on the eve of his execution. What does Jesus say? He says, my, my hour has come to be handed over to the hands of sinners who will lift me up, crucify me, and I will die. And I will be raised again. That's the hour that we are anticipating here. And what is Jesus saying here? Look, look, my hour isn't coming here, which means that whatever he does here has that hour, that moment, that event in mind. This sign points us to the meaning of the cross. Jesus does not perform this miracle because he's out of ideas. You know, maybe he, he, he thought, well, we'll just run by Walmart when no one's looking and we'll sneak in some wine and we'll charge you to the credit card. We'll figure out how to pay it later. That's not what we have here. Jesus isn't out of ideas. He does this miracle to draw our attention to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through his passion, Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom made up of new people. New creation is the theme that runs throughout this gospel, right? Chapter 2, you get water into wine. Jesus creates out of nothing. What's the next chapter? John chapter 3. We know verse 16, don't we? God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, right? But what is, what's happening leading up to that? What does Jesus say? You must be born again. That is to say, those who enter the kingdom must be new people. They must be born again. Well, that is introduced here with new wine. Water turns into wine, a creation out of nothing. He, he, he creates wine where there is none. And that is the same work he performs in the heart of men and women by the means of his death. Now, all of this, all of us know that something must change within our hearts. The problem is, is we have a hard time changing our hearts. What we need is an act of creation. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Notice it there again in verse 6. The Jews believed that ceremony and ritual were enough to make them clean, right? That's why there's all these water pots everywhere. What does Jesus come? That's not good enough for you. You can wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. It's not good enough for you. 
You can't trust your ancestry and your ceremony. What you need is new wine. This sign shows the only way for us to be made clean, the only way we can become pure and new is by running to Christ who turns the old into new, the water into wine. Not only is Jesus new wine, Jesus is Lord of the feast. As new wine, he becomes Lord of the feast. If you notice here that Jesus' first sign in John's gospel is a celebration, it's odd, isn't it, that we have a hard time imagining Jesus smiling. That's a problem that we should have. If we had time, we we could lay out, we've done this before, lay out the the, the theology of God's joy. Uh, The Bible speaks often of God's joy. Perhaps the verse we think of the most is when Jesus says in in Luke 15 that whenever a sinner repents, the angels in heaven celebrate. You get this picture of God as celebratory. We oftentimes think of God as frowning, and that's not a biblical picture. Now, he will smite thee if he needs to thee, right? But as general rule, God is a God of feasting and festivities and celebration. What is it we get here? Jesus in the context of celebration. Now, the world obsesses over mere happiness. In fact, we spend countless dollars, trillions of dollars every year in pursuit of happiness. We act like the only thing that matters about each other is that we are happy. And if you're happy in your misery, then who am I to judge, right? But we, even though happiness is the key pursuit of the average American. We are among the most depressed people in the world. It's an old statistic, several years old, couldn't find a a more reliable recent one. But it says that one out of every 20 Americans, 12 years of age and older, report being depressed. That, That statistic's over 10 years old. I suspect add COVID on top of that for two years, that number has skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. The number of people on pharmaceuticals to deal with depression and despair and melancholy is through the roof. Number of people with therapists, because we don't have pastors anymore, is through the roof. The problem is too many of us turn to Netflix, not to Jesus. And we wonder why we're still miserable and alone. The wedding continues because of this miracle. That's an important detail, isn't it? Without the wine, the reception ends, right? But with the wine, the festivities can continue. I think Tim Keller is right in his treatment of this text. He describes this scene as Jesus bringing festive joy. Of all the reasons to reject Jesus, he adds, doing so on account of Jesus being a killjoy cannot and should not be one of them. Here, Jesus is in a moment of celebration. In fact, what you get in the Old Testament is a picture of God who uh, enjoys feasting and festivity. And it uses the imagery of wine to show us a God who, who rejoices with his people. Let me give you a few, few examples. Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine 
He will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice, be glad in his salvation. That ought to sound familiar. Turn in the Bible. What do you read? You read of God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. At what point? At a wedding. It's almost like God wrote the Bible, isn't it? Right? Jeremiah chapter 31, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy in the height of Zion. They will be raiding over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life will be like watered gardens. They will never languish again. And the virgin will rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. What is it that we have here? Same exact thing, Joel chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and the spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. You see in the connection here, this isn't just about whether or not I can drink alcohol. The issue is, who is this Jesus? Amos chapter 9, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So when you come to the story about Jesus at a wedding making new wine, it should make all sense. Why? Because Israel is looking forward to the day when we will be satisfied, every tear wiped from the eye, and we will be in perpetual joy because Messiah has come in walks Mary and says we got a problem we're out of wine and Jesus says oh fill it up with water it's fine I took care of it the party can continue Jesus's conversion of such a large quantity of water into wine would indicate that the long-awaited Messiah has come no wonder we read there again in verse 11 this the first of his signs you think this is good dear reader this is only the beginning he didn't give his good stuff at the beginning. Just wait. It's going to get better and better and better. This is but a taste of what is to come. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Why? Because he's new wine. Because he's the Lord of the feast. And this new arrival, this Savior, Messiah, results in real Joy. You see it there that joy is not connected to our circumstances. It is connected to a Savior who, in the middle of a crisis, sees to it the festivities can continue for the simple fact he is there. Jesus is new wine, he's the Lord of the feast. Came across of a story of a church celebrating the Lord's Supper. Of course, you can see the connection with the Lord's Supper now, can't you? We gather and celebrate communion. What is it that we were doing? It's a simple ritual we partake in that should bring us joy because we are tasting what is to come. 
eternal intimacy with our Savior, who is the Lord of the feast. Well, this church had a bit of a boo-boo. Okay, can I read to you this, this man's account? One communion Sunday in our Massachusetts church, the deacon in, in charge of communion inadvertently substituted cranberry juice for grape juice. In true New England fashion, some of the congregation, upon the passing of this new wine over their tongues, wanted desperately to gag, but couldn't because of the solemnity of the moments. As I gazed up at the puckered up faces, I had to refrain from shouting, he did it again, he did it again. Well, in one sense, he, he did do it again, didn't he? And the good news is, is he, he is still doing it today. The greatest miracle Christ ever performed was not water into wine or death into life, but a sinner into a saint. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray.